1: On SAVE THE QUEEN
0: Hello and welcome to This is On SAVE THE QUEEN I'm your host today, lifestyle editor Zoe Forsey and I'm joined today by Stuart Pearce who is the author of Diana, the Voice of Change which is a self-help book which speaks about the techniques that Stuart used while working as Princess Diana's vocal coach Welcome to the show, Stuart, how are you?
1: Hi, I'm absolutely thrilled to be here. It's lovely to meet you. So thank you for being so charming and lovely.
0: <laughs> well, I'm gonna jump straight in if that's all right, because we've got lots of questions um that we want to ask you today. So firstly, can you just briefly describe what you do? What what does a vocal coach do?
1: So I was I started off as an actor and worked as an actor in the 70s. Um so I gained a lot of theatre experience of using my voice in very, very large containers, you know, particularly within the classics. Um, and then in the late 70s, early early 80s, I made this organic shift through the inspiration of a very remarkable woman with whom I'd worked at the Royal Shakespeare Company called Cicely Berry, who alas is now dead, but she was the voice director of um, of the Royal Shakespeare Company and had was responsible for giving voices to... Ian McKellen, Judy Dench, Patrick Stewart, Ben Kingsley—all these wonderful actors that, of course, are now very senior in their field. You know, so in the early 70s, that's the, they're the people who were my influences. So, a voice coach, very simply, in those terms, is someone who trains young actors or, indeed, pros, professional actors in the craft of how they can use their voices to be absolutely natural in really unnatural situations. Meaning there you are standing on a stage talking to 1,600 people about some really, really intimate detail. <laughs> and that you know, that can be both um, pressurizing, nerve-wracking, and highly challenging if you're not on the spot. Um, Similarly in film, the same thing. of How do you create instantaneous rapport using your voice? Because our voices are at the very core of our beings. And whenever we feel nervous or threatened, our voices are always affected. So I come along and make it easy for the people who are being demanded of.
0: Okay, and you've worked with some really interesting people over the years. Uh, Margaret Thatcher is one of the big names, but who we are here to talk about today, obviously, as... We are a royal podcast, is Princess Diana. And um, So, when did you work with her and how did that come
1: about? I was introduced to Diana in 1995. So, I came along at the end of when the Martin Bashir Panorama, the BBC Panorama interview was first uh, um, visualized, it you know, was first broadcast and um <clears throat> diana looked at the video and didn't really like the way she sounded didn't like the way that she looked but more importantly it wasn't just to do that because that sounds really superficial but of course we all know what that means because when we listen to ourselves on recording we don't like our voices or we see ourselves in a video because here we are zooming ourselves or videoing ourselves so much today as a result of the social phenomena that we're going through Um, But we don't like what we see. And it was much more to do with the fact that she was moving through a rebirthing of herself or a a transformation into a new way of being, because she was no longer just solidly the Princess of Wales. I mean, her title was still Diana, Princess of Wales, but she was no longer officially part of the royal household. Um, And one of the things that she did was to, you know, she did this sort of thing and her voice became very light and um it was very delicate and rather beautiful but it was all very very light so what she wanted was to acquire a little bit of gravity a little bit of a little bit of weight and a little bit of fullness in her voice and so i came along was introduced to her immediately adored her because she was just so gorgeous i mean just such an easy loving heavenly being i mean just really immediate authentic, true, easy, no heirs and graces, you know, none of that sort of, I am a star.
0: And so you said that she wanted to go to kind of having a bit more power in her voice. Was that obviously as after she was in the royal family, she was doing a lot more of her own charity work and kind of as an in, more as an independent woman rather than just, you know, the wife of the future king.
1: Yeah, but I mean, the whole vessel of her life is really a document of how does a woman empower herself and in her context in that particular social environment where she was adored on the outside and disparaged or disenfranchised on the inside I mean the British royal family just didn't understand what she was going through, literally. They didn't understand the ravages of her bulimia. They didn't understand her extraordinary immediacy and the demand for authenticity. They were living behind masks, which was very effective for them, less so today than 25 years ago, 30 years ago. But even so, that was the case. And Diana was absolutely spontaneous, completely immediate and totally impetuous. Um, but, you know, was also having grave difficulty in trying to find ways of n- learning how to love, you know, because she was nineteen, twenty, and had never had a lover when she, found, when she got married, which was, you know, when you think back, that was the sort of classical way of getting married. And a man wouldn't marry a woman unless she were a maid. And, all, you know, all of the social taboo and stigma that went with that. Um, so she was fragile. She was immensely vulnerable. She was an empath. We're hearing more and more and more about the empaths that are stepping forward, whereas they've always hidden. I would like to think that I'm an empath who has empowered himself to be able to do something like this. Whereas, you know, 40 years ago, I was not this powerful. I was not this easy. I was not this relaxed. So I came along to help her because I was known within the theater industry and through a lot of the other clients that I've worked with, that I was an empowerer, that I helped people develop their presence.
0: So before you started working with her, what traits had you noticed in her voice and the way she spoke? Because obviously, w- you know, the public had seen her come a long way, as you said, from that very young 19-year-old who, you know, and, and at the wedding when they, when she was so young and that first engagement interview, I don't know if you remember it, but, you know, she was just kind of very short answers, looked terrified. Um, and, you know, she had come a long way to, you know, when she did her you know, famous interview. But what? parts of her voice did you particularly pick up on before you started
1: working with her? Well, I think you've just described it very beautifully. She was frightened. And, and as I explained just now, you know, that when we're, fr- when we're frightened, we use very, very small voices like this. Now, if you're doing this, there's a lot of tension being held within the body. So it's less about what we feel about her voice. It was much more about what she was feeling about her voice, that she didn't feel that she was empowered. She didn't feel that she could speak so much of what she was feeling because when she was in an informal situation, she was immensely relaxed, very playful, laughed a tremendous amount, was always finding the absurdities in life, not in, in, in terms of denigrating somebody, but just finding the absurdities in life and having fun exploring them in all of their wonder and in all of their ridiculousness. So it was much more about the fact that she didn't feel relaxed, that she, every time she walked onto a stage, was quivering. In other words, she was experiencing the universal phenomenon of public speaking fear. You know, public speaking is the number one fear beyond um, the loss of a relationship, whether that be through death or through divorce. Or I think the next one is buying property and then on the Pacific coastline, the fourth is shark attack. So there are these stress factors in our lives. More people are more terrified of public speaking than they are of dying. So she was very, very frightened. And I mean, it's pretty obvious that when you look at the Martin Bashir interview, that she's doing this a tremendous amount and looking out I'll of the I'll just corner say, of
0: her because just, I'll just point out, sorry, because obviously this is just an audio thing. So it's the kind of. Oh,
1: right, of course. Beg
0: your, baby your baby pardon. Yeah, not she? <laughs>
1: <laughs> so, in other words, she was looking submissive by tucking her chin down and looking to one side, looking out of the corner of her eye, which, of course, is not an easy social accessing clue for anybody because it looks as though the person is terrified. And as a result of that, do you really want to talk to them? Do you just want to leave them so that they can empower themselves? Or or, or do you really want to engage? And she wanted to be completely playful and spontaneous, relaxed, and therefore full of her own presence and so when you when you think about the transition of what happened after that period meaning after the Martin Bashir interview, that was a real watershed. And it's true that she'd worked with another another actor called Peter Seton, who had taken her through a lot of work, but she wanted something slightly special. And that's what I do. What I do is I emp- help to empower people through a series of skills that are not just to do with the physiology of the voice, they're to do with the way that we think and feel about ourselves. So
0: what, techniques did you use to achieve this? Obviously, I appreciate it's a very complicated process. (laughs) And um, I'm not expecting you to kind of go over all of it. If people want to read more, they can obviously, you know, get a copy of the book. But can you kind of summarise some of the techniques you used together?
1: Yeah, absolutely. The first thing that I introduced to Diana was the nature of the fact that we each have a note. We each have a signature sound that is at the very core of our beings, which of course is now being invested in, mightily, in our technological world. Because, for example, you know, I had an email the other day from my bank saying that if I wanted to find an easy access point to any transaction on my accounts, that all I needed to do was to record my voice. In other words, within our voice is a pattern, is a pattern of sound that is actually our soul in sound. It's the very essence of our being in sound, which apparently is even more accurate than our fingerprint or our iris. So whereas fingerprints have always been used in the world of crime, you can just imagine voices in the future are going to be the identikit of the individual. So what I did was to introduce Diana to this. She was living above her note. She was living here in the subtlety and the sensitivity of her sounding, and she wanted to find. Uh, she wanted to find a fullness. She wanted to find the rest of her body producing resonance, producing sound. So what I did was to introduce her to the way that breath produces sound, and then how she could identify with her note. And as soon as she found that, she noted that there was a harmony within her body that gave her a great sense of personal sovereignty. And then, of course, what we did was to apply it to the formal situation of the way that she was speaking in public. In other words, how to deliver those speeches. And, uh, you know, I introduced her to one of the things that I used extensively with Margaret, with Margaret Thatcher, um, who wanted to produce a delivery that was always received by everybody, but where nobody could interrupt her. So I introduced her to the rising inflection and the rising inflection goes up like that and it leaves the thought in the air. But what it does is to signal to um, most English speakers or most English listeners that the person hasn't finished, so you don't interrupt them, Uh, you wait until they come down into a downward inflection, and once they come to a falling inflection, it sounds, a downward inflection rather, it sounds that they've finished. One of the things that Diana did when she spoke was to say, da 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 da. And I don't know about anybody else hearing me do that, but it sounds rather boring. You know, some I'll use a bit of Shakespeare. Thus, with imagined wing, our swift scene flies in motion of no less celerity than that of thought. So you just get used to hearing this repetitive falling inflection, which produces a minor tone. In a moment, you're just going to stop listening. So what I did was to show her how she could literally deliver in a continuating extended phrase until she got to the end, and then her voice would naturally go down, breathe in, and then she would carry on. So what you do is you take the whole of your audience rather, on an arc of intention, which is something that is gradually being undermined today by the way that we think in these really really short chunks and so what we tend to do is to breathe on the commas rather than on the full stops the point is you see that for whatever language we speak we always have enough breath for the intention that we're speaking at the point that i'm making and this is what diana was doing she was thinking in these short chunks of intention and when that is translated into formal speech it sounds da 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 well if you keep hearing da 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 you're going to feel you're going to feel as though your, um you know your thinking your feeling your appreciation of what the person is saying is getting to an end and just reaching a terrible point of finality so i showed how to explore those rhythms in the way that i do with any public speaker
0: so after you kind of started spending time together and working on these things, are there any speeches that she or any interviews that she gave that you think that she kind of really nailed, but you, know, she, you were really happy with how she did it and took those techniques on board?
1: Oh gosh, you see, there were so many, I can't really remember because it was so long ago, but there was one which was really, uh, for her, it was an extraordinary moment of accomplishment because it was, I'm sure it was in New York, And she was winning an award, and it was a humanitarian award for the efforts that she brought to liberating people around the world, you know, whether it were for AIDS or for um, mental health or through through bulimia, bulimia, you know. And she's the first person that actually shook the hand of an AIDS patient, and when she did that, the whole world was shaken into a new reality. I mean, this was the extraordinary power of Diana from an archetypal point of view, you know, that she was the most photographed woman in recorded history. And everybody loved her on the outside. They felt that she was doing something extraordinary. So wherever she went, she would detonate these social changes. As we saw... Lamentably, as we saw at her death, when 3.5 billion people wept. I mean, that's not my record. That was the recording, that's a record that was produced by the BBC. So there was one speech when she was winning an award in New York, and <clears throat> she was talking about the children, I think. And somebody in the audience shouted, Oh, well, where's your where are your children? Or something like that. You know, which in the past, I mean that would be difficult for most people, but In the past, she would have been so shocked by that, because it was aggressive, it came out of context, frankly inappropriate, and she turned to the person and said, where all good children should be, at school. Thank you, and continued. And that was a moment of triumph because she had the presence to be able to do that. She wasn't rude. She wasn't caustic. She wasn't cynical. She just simply answered the question and then breathed in and carried on. And everybody clapped. I think she couldn't continue because there was sort of like a five or 10 minute standing ovation, you know, because it was obvious that she was held in huge regard. This was in New York, I seem to remember. She was held in huge regard by our American friends and the New Yorkers. You know, it's it's recorded in history that when she first arrived in New York, the whole of Manhattan w- were on the streets waiting to see her. Her glamour, her beauty, her immediacy, her authenticity, you know, the, the hallmark of what it is to live the American dream. They're very immediate people. They love celebrating.
0: And so... Obviously, you've spoken quite a lot about the Diana that was seen in the public eye and that, you know, everyone knew and loved, you know, as you said, kind of in New York, but around the world. What was the Diana like that you knew and worked with?
1: Well, for me, she was one of the most beautiful people that I've ever worked with. and I I don't mean just because of the way she looked, although she did have the most extraordinary eyes, these sapphire blue eyes that were full of love, full of kindness. They could also easily weep as well. And I was around her when often she felt devastated by what was going on in the world, the way that she was being criticised, the way that she was often treated by the paparazzi who could be vile. You know, I was with her once when she was called, I'm not going to use the swear words, but she was called an effing C. uh, And that was just to get a response, you know, and her children were with her when that happened. You know, they they were babies. I mean, not on. So it was that sort of experience where she would be very affected. Um, I I remember her in immense fun. She was very earthy. (laughs) I mean, you know, our, our deal was that our relationship was completely confidential, completely confidential. And the reason being that I didn't want to be part of the circus that surrounded her whether that be the paparazzi, all of that shenanigans, or any of the infighting that was going on in the royal family, in the royal household. I was brought up in that as my father worked for the royal family. So I was very aware of the degrees of status that were there and how the higher courtiers could often be very acerbic in their approach to people. And they evidently didn't like her because she was you know, doing things that you're not supposed to do if you're royal. Um, And so, you know, she would often arrive at my studio, which was then in um, Chelsea. And um, when she arrived, she would often say to me, oh, do you have any washing up I can do? Because she just loved getting grounded. She'd love, she loved being ordinary. I mean, that's, I think, a beautiful is- illustration of her. And she would often say, do you have any shirts that you need ironing? <laughs> <I'd say that laughs> I would say, I'm going le- to leave some crockery for you too. I'm going to leave some china for you to wash up in the kitchen. But I think <laughs> ironing my shirts, I don't think that's on. <laughs> Let's get on with her. <laughs> But I mean, she was just so, do you, can you see what I'm saying? saying she was so vulnerable and vital and alive and just you know what I call adorable I mean she had sun in the head she just shone but in situations where a lot was demanded of her and particularly in the formal aspect of state occasion or you know some of the public appearances that she gave that the critics are out there and that made her feel very insecure so what I did was to help her to feel secure to help her to always be in that natural undiluted tributary of joy that she had
0: and so you to be clear you obviously this is Book is very much about your professional relationship as you've said you haven't gone into any of the details and um, of the kind of personal side of her life but why have you decided to write it now
1: well it was something that she and I talked about <clears throat> and she spoke wistfully by saying you know all that we're doing you, you've helped me so extraordinarily um that all that we're doing could make an, an amazing book eventually and I said, oh, do you really think so? Because I was sworn to the confidentiality of that agreement. And she said, well, if you do write it, can you not do it until the children are married?
0: Okay. Why do you think it was?
1: She wanted to protect them. In case there were, you know, any ridiculous exposures, not in relation to what I would impart, but around... The circus that can be created, you know, I've been I've been chased by a lot of people who want to want me to comment on what we refer to as the kiss and tell aspects. So the book that I've written is actually about the essence of Diana. I've read most of the books that have been written about her. And this is a different book. I didn't want to write another one of those books. i wanted to I didn't want to write a document about what she did and who she slept with and so forth. I wanted to talk about those bits of Diana that we have questions about that we haven't had answered. So I write about I, I write about the the unanswerable, and I question the unquestionable. For example, what was her death all about? Why did it affect 3.5 people? Why at this time is there this huge Diana revival where she's, as it were, her ghost has been sleeping for the last 20-odd years, and now we have The Crown, we have extraordinary articles written about her, books that are coming out, we have the dispute over the Martin Meshire interview and the, the possibility of the fact that it was created nefariously, um, I don't know about that, actually, because, you know, as far as I was concerned, all that Diana said to me was that it was, a, you know, she liked Martin Bashir and that she wasn't being hoodwinked into doing something. For her, it was just another level of revelation. After all, her, her ex-husband had done it. Prince Charles had done it with, um, with um, forgive me, was it was Jonathan Dimbleby, I believe. Um, he'd been very, very overt about what was going on in his life um and now there is a movie being made about her so there's this huge revival which is strange for people possibly like yourself who uh, i don't know if you were around when she died in 19, 1997 were you around
0: i was yes you weren't,
1: but you were you were a baby uh
0: no i'm i'm no i was how old was i
1: uh, 8 or 9 ah well for me, that,
0: yeah remember that, it
1: that's a, anything under 12 was a baby <laughs> <laughs> Uh, but that, that's surprising, darling. That's really surprising because most of the young people that I've spoken to, they say, but we don't really have a relationship with her. We have much more of a relationship with Megan." <clears throat> so the point is, I believe that she was one of those extraordinary people that come, the anointed ones, you know, the chosen ones, that they come because they have a unique social role to fulfill in opening up uh, something very specific within uh, our lives as human beings on this planet. I felt that what she opened up was love, compassion.
0: And looking to the, you know, kind of the the next generation of royals, the, um, obviously Diana's sons, Harry and William, and the Duchess of Cambridge and the Duchess of Sussex, what have you kind of noticed from the way they speak? Are there any kind of interesting things you've noticed over the years?
1: well i feel that you know that they're all as young people you know they're all beginning to really own their voices um i feel that william has really grown and grown and matured wonderfully i noticed a huge sense of difference or a huge sound difference in his voice as soon as he became a father and that's not unusual you know something something changed in his uh, in his tone it became fuller richer Dare I say more mature, you know? But I mean that. I, I don't mean that as a criticism. That's just simply I know, having lived nearly 70 years on this planet myself. But the life, the experience of life, allows one to acquire ways of being able to deal with the with the vicissitudes of what life is all about. Um, I'd I love to work with Catherine. I think she's an extraordinary, beautiful, beautiful woman. Um and i don't feel she owns her voice. i'd love to work with her. Uh, i think what they're both doing is amazing you know um in the world and particularly with mental health because i i've always had um a grave interest in helping people who are experiencing mental illness and um you know you can hear through the nature of what i'm describing that my work moves into many 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 different arenas of activity um you know, as an empowerer, as a as a as a coach, a presence coach, as a life coach, I feel that what Harry and Meghan are doing is absolutely extraordinary. I mean, Meghan, of course, has had the experience of being an extrovert and an extrovert specifically in relation to her work as an actor. But we know that she's a highly defined intellect and has some very pronounced. uh, attitudes or aspects of what she wants to do in the world i just think it's very 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 unfortunate that the british press was so vitriolic with her because it was quite racist what was going on i mean i happen to be privy to some of the insults that were thrown at both her harry and their child so um, so their voices, and I, I, you see, I speak about their voices in terms of their essence. You know, uh, there's nothing that I would necessarily want to change about their voices, or ch- I don't change people's voices to help them transform their voice. Um, but it, you know, my my service always depends on what the individual wants, and what I do is I I bring in all of my skill set to help the individual feel better about their voices. And often it's purely to do with self-confidence.
0: I think personally, that's one thing that I've really enjoyed is, and um, I don't know if you've listened to Meghan and Harry's podcast, but I love the kind of contrast between their way of speaking, where you've got Harry with the more formal way he speaks, but then you've got the kind of actress side of Meghan, where they're both very confident, but I think they complement each other really well when their voices are kind of side by side and they're in that conversation. I think that's so interesting to see and I think something that's probably been a really you know a real kind of advantage to Megan is having that you know compared to obviously Catherine when she came in and she was quite new to it to have that that background and you could really feel the confidence coming off her and I think it just meant that she had you know as you said in their short time that she was in the royal family she had such a huge impact and did so much good and I think a lot of that was that confidence which comes across really clearly doesn't it
1: Hmm. Well, I mean, you know, actors are emotional gladiators. You get very used to exploring every feeling that is possible within the kaleidoscope of human expression. Otherwise, how can you expect to stand in front of a casting director or a, ca- a series of cameras or a, a large audience if you don't have the ability to be able to tap into those aspects of human consciousness but often we're very inhibited about. Those people who are not working in the entertainment industries are often withheld. And so we get used to exploring. And obviously we can see within, within Megan that she's really upfront. I mean, in that sense, she's immensely American. She's immensely Los Angelian. She's immediate. she is fascinated, she's curious, she celebrates life in all its, she doesn't hide from life, she celebrates life. That's very different from what Harry's been through, although Harry, as we know, is someone who is, has a lot of freedom, has always had a lot of freedom in his life to explore the naughtinesses that, you know, young men like to explore, and particularly Harry. I, I, I mean, I find that absolutely charming, you know, that he has that level of freedom. But at the same time, he is still a prince of the royal, British royal household and was educated at Eton. You know, now there's an interesting point about people's voices, you know, because when you think about the sound of the, of the upper classes, the British upper classes, going to places like Eton or Rugby or, or Stowe, or, uh, there would be that sort of nasal thing going on in the past, you know, which uh, one can slightly hear it in Prince Charles's voice, you know, exaggeration, you know, everything goes out the corner of his mouth. Whereas both those boys, like so many of the acting students that have been through my hands over the years, who have been to Eton, they—they're all just a little bit like that. You know what I mean? Just you know, sort of, just a little bit like London, sort of, so, you know, sort of like going to Estuary English. <laughs> so the, flat, the the vowels become flattened. That you—you wouldn't hear somebody say now. You would hear them say now, or, or or rather than or, for example. Really
0: interesting, isn't it? How that changes. And so, just lastly, then we obviously have lots of listeners who I'm sure will be really intrigued as to how they can, you know, how they can use their voices. Do you have any kind of tips that people can try if they want to, you know, make the most out of their voices and
1: what they? Oh, I think the best thing is to read the book. (laughs) <laughs> I am the voice of change by Stuart Pearce. Um, it's an extraordinary journey, even though I say it myself. I mean, you know, when I when I brought it out, firstly through Amazon, it was an in, it became an international bestseller in three days, you know, sold out. So it's obviously got something really interesting within it, and and now one of the reasons why we're speaking is because it's being published by a large, very successful American. And it's interesting that it's a U.S. publishing company. It's been quite a journey with this book. It hasn't been easy to, um, to bring it to everybody's attention. Um, our, vo- our voices are really, 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 you know, apropos what you asked me, our voices are really at the core of our lives, and our lives at this moment are very challenged. And so in order to release the challenges, in order to release the the worry, the fear, the uncertainty, one of the things that I would really suggest is find yourself a really good vocal meditation once a day where you're breathing and sounding, even, dare I say, chanting. And all it needs to be is chanting the R. I've made tons of recordings that you can find on my websites. Stuartpears.com. there are tons of recordings you know of encouraging people to sustain the breath into the tone what it does is produce harmony and the fact that we're all experiencing disharmony because we're all terrified or whatever you know looking at the the covid situation looking at the changing Uh, geopolitical climate you know the, the the land is quaking looking at economic uncertainty looking at looking at looking at all of these vast changes most people are feeling very insecure so if we're actually breathing and sounding we feel relaxed if we feel relaxed we feel harmony and when we feel harmony we feel our personal power
0: that's brilliant well thank you so much for joining us today it's been so interesting
1: Bless you. I've had such fun. Thank you for bringing me on. And um, I hope everybody can acquire a copy of the book, which can easily be found on Amazon.
0: Brilliant. Thank you very much. And thank you for listening. Until next time.
1: And save the Queen!